0: Journal Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your guest host, Nana Jumpy, temporarily filling in for Margaret Prescott. Today, the latest on Hurricane Ida and its impact on Louisiana. Reports say Hurricane Ida has become the second most intense hurricane to strike Louisiana on record, behind Hurricane Katrina in 2005. At least four people have died, Dozens have been injured and millions have been left without power or permanently displaced from their homes. Our guest is Louisiana based Monique Hardin, Assistant Director of Law and Policy and the Community Engagement Program Manager at the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. Also, immigration policies under the government of President Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We discuss how these policies affect the most vulnerable migrant communities, including migrants of color. Our guest is Carl Hamad Listom, and our weekly Earth Minute. We live in a global We are all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted Women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines.
1: I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. A Texas law banning most abortions in the state took effect today. It's the strictest restriction on the procedure in decades. Under the law, an abortion would be prohibited as soon as a heartbeat is detectable, which is normally after about six weeks of pregnancy. Many women aren't even aware that they're pregnant at that time. The Supreme Court has not responded to an emergency appeal to put the law on hold. If allowed to remain in force, the law would be the most dramatic restriction on abortion rights in the U.S. since the high court's landmark Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion in 1973. Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed the bill into law in May. The law allows individuals to sue any abortion provider, which pro-choice advocates say will severely limit women's reproductive options in the state. A federal judge is expected to rule today on a bankruptcy plan for OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma to settle thousands of lawsuits brought by state and local governments and others over its role in the nation's opioid crisis. The deal could be worth $10 billion, with cash coming from members of the Sackler family who own the company Under the deal, the Sacklers would give up ownership of the company and get protection from lawsuits over opioids. Purdue would be remade into a new company with profits being used to pay some victims and fund drug treatment, education, and other measures to fight the surging opioid epidemic. The remnants of Hurricane Ida are forecast to churn across the mid-Atlantic today. Up to 8 inches of rain could be dumped in spots from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts. The National Hurricane Center says Kate is still holding on as a tropical depression far from Atlantic coasts, and Tropical Storm Larry, which formed off Africa, is forecast to rapidly intensify into a major hurricane. A tornado watch was issued along the Appalachians through western Virginia and northern North Carolina, and life-threatening flash floods could appear in cities and areas of steep terrain from West Virginia to Massachusetts. As schools reopen across the nation this autumn, parents and teachers are speaking out about the surging cases of the COVID-19 Delta variant, especially among children 12 and younger who aren't eligible for vaccines. And as Public News Service's Lily Bulkey reports, low-income and families of color stand to take a big hit.
2: Advocates for low-income children and families are raising concerns that if kids get sick, especially in states or towns, without mask or vaccine mandates, parents will be forced to stay home, and some may lose their jobs. California has a state mask mandate in schools, which are also required to offer a remote learning option for families who aren't ready to send their kids back. Aisha is a mom from Jackson, Mississippi, who shares their concerns.
3: Because of the Delta variant of COVID, it's scary. I'd rather pay a high-power bill than have them at school, honestly.
2: Health experts have also raised concerns about the spread of vaccine misinformation. They say even though the vaccines are safe and effective, hesitancy plus barriers that disproportionately affect women, people of color, and low-wage workers put more kids and families at risk. I'm Lily Bulky reporting.
1: Crews fought to prevent the rapidly advancing Caldor fire from reaching the resort town of South Lake Tahoe overnight. The flames forced residents in Nevada to evacuate one day after thousands of California residents clogged roads headed away from the fire. Gusty winds are in the forecast again today in the area. Christina Anastad reports.
0: More than 33,000 homes are threatened and more than 600 structures have been destroyed in the Calder Fire. Firefighters are bracing for a rough 24 hours ahead as flames fanned by dry conditions and winds roar as high as 200 feet. And it isn't the only fire to grow in California. The state's largest fire this year, the Dixie Fire, continues burning in five northern California counties and remains 48 percent contained. It scorched more than 807,000 acres. In all, more than 14,300 firefighters remain on the front lines of 15 active large wildfires that have burned more than 1.83
4: million acres in California. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for KPFA.
1: And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio.
0: Those were our news headlines. Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. This is your guest host, Nana Jumpy, temporarily filling in for Margaret Prescott. Days after Hurricane Ida slammed into Louisiana's coastline near Port Fourchon, function as a Category 4 hurricane, the true scope of Ida's destruction was just starting to be revealed. At least six deaths have been attributed to the storm across the south, including two killed Monday, near Loosedale, Mississippi. Two million Louisians remained without power for a fourth day Wednesday as the impact of Hurricane Ida's devastating romp through the Southwest grew more dire and oppressive heat continued. Though no longer a hurricane, much of the Northeast was bracing for Ida's wrath. The potential for life-threatening and damaging flooding reached into New England, At least 72 million people along a 1,200 mile stretch of the United States were under a flash flood watch Wednesday. Grateful that Monica Hardin has joined us to update us on the situation in Louisiana right now in the wake of the devastation of Hurricane Ida. Monique Hardin is the Assistant Director of Law and Policy and the Community Engagement Program Manager at the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. The center provides research, education, community and student engagement support, as well as worker training in environmental careers. Ms. Hardin has more than 20 years of achievement as an attorney working on behalf of predominantly African American communities to win significant environmental justice victories in the Gulf Coast region. She's the former co-director of Advocates for Environmental Human Rights. Welcome, Monica. Oh,
3: thank you. Thank you for having me on my show. It's Monique. Oh, Monique.
0: Sorry. Thank you. It's okay. It's okay. We've all seen the damages in the videos and heard about the 150-mile-an-hour winds, a hurricane with more strength than Hurricane Katrina. What can you tell us about the impact that you're seeing on the ground with the people of Louisiana right now?
3: Well, I mean, the situation is dire. We, people who are are stranded in their homes, uh, wait, you know, in need of emergency response, rescue, evacuation, Um, people who have been able to, uh, you know, uh, Get Rescue have talked about not eating for the last several days since the uh, Hurricane Ida passed, which is just, you know, devastating. Um, and so, what this means right now is, how can we get help to people across Louisiana and into Mississippi uh, and parts of Alabama who've been harmed by this hurricane? And where I live in New Orleans. Much of the problems that we're seeing right now are not directly related to the hurricane, but related to the the domination of one utility company in the state over energy planning and policy that has left us without electric power, um, and that is just feeding a humanitarian crisis in in, in our city
0: and in surrounding parishes. And so, speaking specifically of the humanitarian crisis, and I want to go back to the power company. We know that during the time of Hurricane Katrina, one of the issues that came up was the response of the federal government, the response of the nonprofits, of the nonprofit industrial complex, comparing that to the response of you know regular folks trying to help um, each other out. What do you see happening with respect to the governmental response, for example, right now on the ground there in Louisiana?
4: Um,
3: The governmental response right now has been focusing on trying to get help to people and focusing on hospitals as well. As you know, just we're in a um, an area of the country where we have, you know, increased. COVID hospitalizations and deaths, and our hospitals are you know, at the edge in terms of their capacities, and now you pull out electricity from that, it's a dire, dire situation in terms of life and death for the patients. Uh, and, and this, you know, children's hospital, hospitals across the, the region serving, and, uh, and that need, of course, for hospital and medical care has heightened as a result of the hurricane and the electric power outage. Um, so the the governmental response um, has been really, you know, kind of pushing in those directions, but it's going to be limited because of the lack of electricity that could Uh, be used, that's definitely needed at hospitals and for emergency response. It's also needed for um, providing um, treated water, you know, potable water through the taps. It's also needed uh, in homes to keep the lights on. People can chill their medicines, be comfortable in the summer heat, um, and, and, you know, have uh, food to eat. So this this electrical outage that's affecting New Orleans and surrounding parishes is, a, you know, really needs to be the attention of federal governmental response, even in the area uh, on the on the subject of what caused the electrical outage. Um, right now, the company Entergy is uh, reporting that it's assessing what caused this. Transmission tower to collapse into the Mississippi River um, late into the evening uh, when the winds of Hurricane Ida were in the under 60 miles per hour with gusts of about 80, uh, which should have been withstood by a transmission system uh, according to the to the company. So why it actually fell and collapsed, we don't know. But we don't trust the company to give us the the facts. Of any assessment, and we really want the U.S. Department of Energy and FEMA to be a part of that assessment, as well as the work looking ahead of how do we rebuild uh, the Gulf Coast region in a way where solar energy and those options around energy efficiency can be really made available to the people and uh, who call this uh, this region home. Um, The the same company that is responsible for the transmission tower that collapsed into the Mississippi River—that's Entergy is also the same company that has waged war on energy efficiency projects and home weatherization programs and solar options like neighborhood grids, rooftop panels, uh, battery storage across the state, and, and instead have been continuing to push more and more gas plants that we see aren't working uh, in this time of disaster. So we've been paying for a lot of this kind of um uh you, uh you know um, poor, uh reckless energy planning, and now people's lives are put at stake because of it.
0: And you know when you when you're saying all of that, it's reminding me of what happened in Texas when they had the freeze, and I think that we don't talk enough about the impact of these electric companies on the lives of people, and particularly when we're looking at these types of devastations. You talked about the gas plants, and I think that it's important for folks to know a little bit about the areas that are being most hit by Hurricane Ida and other hurricanes that come through. We know there's an area that's come to be known as Cancer Alley because it contains several industrial plants and is home to clusters of cancer patients. Um, There's other industrial plants also along this 85-mile cancer alley that has been connected to countless health problems in the surrounding communities with companies continuing to develop new facilities there. And so I think before we talk about the people's response and what people are doing to help each other, I think it would be good to hear from you some of that connection between what we see happening with these hurricanes, the type of devastation that we're seeing, and straight environmental racism. Sure. Well, we um,
3: what we know about Cancer Alley is that um, uh, long before there were ever any environmental laws, uh, there were racist, uh, you know, racism uh, really controlled uh, the where these plants were built. So, and that was codified in zoning and land use decisions uh, to place these oil and gas uh, uh, and chemical manufacturing facilities in, in black communities. And as a result, we have lost on record six historic black communities that were built, some before the Civil War, some right after the Civil War, because of the contamination and toxic exposures and pollution brought by uh, this heavy industry. And we're talking about companies like Exxon, companies like Dow, uh, and, and you know, hundreds of others that are part of this uh, toxic mix of pollution uh, in the uh, Mississippi River uh, region called Cancer Alley in Louisiana um these plants are and and the communities that still exist are were in the path of of hurricane ida and so there has yet to be any reporting on the uh, any impact of the the storm winds on these facilities uh, uh or even if they're uh, uh impacts from electrical outages, but what we do know is that for a lot of the african american uh, communities predominantly african American communities roofs were were torn off during the wind so what 's the condition of the industrial facility that 's right next door to those communities is is has been wow. Hasn't been reported on, um, and so we're looking, you know, at that very as closely as we can. The the thing that that makes the um, understanding what the impact of the hurricane has been on the industries. What gets in the way of that is a federal law called the Clean Air Act, and the Clean Air Act allows these facilities to uh, be constructed and to expand without any concern about the health impacts on surrounding communities. The only thing that these companies need to get a permit is, is an application that basically says they will do what other companies in their industrial sectors do. And if they can do that and put that on paper, they get a permit. And the real-life consequences of that permit in terms of the pollution and the hazards and the accidents that come from that are of no moment to this law, including hurricanes. So there are risk management plans these companies have to do pursuant to the law. But guess what? Hurricanes and how to prepare for that and what to do to avoid or at least mitigate against harmful consequences, it's not required. And so reporting back on what happened from the risk management plans, the effectiveness of it, it just does not happen. And so we're, you're you're putting you're making communities targets under this law, in terms of just the day-to-day pollution that happens, you know, uh, and and you know within years that can be millions of pounds of various toxic chemicals people are people are co- exposed to. Then you hammer home the climate impacts of flooding, or heavy winds from hurricanes or storm surge, or just a major rainfall event. And there's again, the the community is, has no protection under this law uh, against that. So that's yeah. that's a, a problem. I think you know, I would, you, I would, we're going to be keeping our eye on. And I think everyone should is what happened. What you know, what was the impact of Hurricane Ida on some 600 chemical uh, manufacturing and storage sites uh, along Kansas. Louisiana? And and what are the impacts on all of the communities? Because we do see and have talked to people who live in St. James Parish and St. John Parish who are, you know, their homes, their buildings are damaged significantly so that they can't even live in it. And they're finding places to live uh, with friends and family. So if that's the condition of their homes, what is the condition of these facilities that some of which date back and are as old as, you know, 60 or so years?
0: Right, right, and I'm thinking about during hurricanes how you have those whipping winds, how you have all of that water, how that's spreading all of these chemicals um, and all of these toxins in the air uh, and and leaving them, depositing them even further than this area that we're talking about. And so, Monique, you described that these areas are areas that are not getting media attention, we're not really getting our eyes in there – Are you able to let us know what are people doing on the ground? So, you know, you may not know what they're doing in those particular areas because of all the reasons that you've already listed up, but what do we see people doing? We know during Hurricane Katrina that folks came together to provide where the government and other big nonprofits were unable to go. What do you see people doing on the ground?
3: So um one of the thing one of the good things that happened uh, after hurricane katrina was that stronger networks and relationships community to community person to person were formed and those bonds have lasted through these 16 years and so we see people mobilizing on that level of response um it's it's you even see it in in small ways where people who have solar power at their homes are able to help out uh, neighbors and people in the community, by you know, charging their cell phones, getting news, sending out uh, email communications, warming food, um, and so that 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 uh, response around sharing and and working together to connect is is happening. Um, and uh, we also see it in terms of just how we have set up over these years after Katrina, tremendous text message groups where you can keep. Uh, in touch with folks, find out if people need something on the text message, and be able to get support uh, uh, out. And so that's happening as well.
0: And I was going to ask you about that, lessons from Katrina that you see going into action right now. And you've talked some about that in terms of the people on the ground and what folks have been doing community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood. Does it seem that there's some lessons that have been learned that are helping in light of COVID-19 and in light of what's happening with the pandemic, um, the Delta variants, et cetera? Because we know that Louisiana was hit hard by the pandemic, and you referenced that earlier in terms of hospitals. We know that hospitals were put in jeopardy during Hurricane Katrina. Whole hospitals had to be evacuated. Any learnings that you see happening there? Well, I think you know, um, as that there
3: probably will be a COVID spike after this. Um, I, I don't see a, a way around that. I mean, one of the things that is needed to protect against COVID is are vaccinations, and there's a whole lot of people in the state who are not vac uh, vaccinated. I mean, New Orleans has an appreciable majority of residents who are but uh, surrounding areas are not, that's not the case. In addition, you really need masks, right? And social distancing. And it, if you can't come, if food is a problem, if people aren't eating in three days, they certainly don't have the wherewithal to have the masks and all of that. And, and just being able to respond. So I, I do think that chances are we're going to see a COVID spike at, at um, following this disaster, Um and that is going to you know, set back, I think, in more ways than one, a lot of recovery for families. And the longer the situation lasts where the electricity is out, the more it puts people in a desperate situation and uh, where they're not only just exposed to COVID, but their, their lives
0: are really hanging in the balance. Thank you for bringing up the desperation and sort of how people are going to be making it through. I mean, we're hearing that for some folks, they may not get electricity for three weeks. Some people are being told 30 days. I have a couple of friends that um, live in Louisiana outside of New Orleans, and they're telling me, look, we're being told 30 days, which makes me think about, food and makes me think about the images during Hurricane Katrina of people going to stores and and taking food so that they can feed their families and feed their communities, and the law enforcement response that included people literally being murdered by police uh, during that really terrible time um, around Katrina. What are you seeing in terms of law enforcement, and do you see that that type of crackdown in terms of law enforcement will be happening this time around. I don't anticipate that
3: that that will uh, be the case, particularly in the city of New Orleans. Um, But it's something that that really, you know, you have to be vigilant about because it is endemic in the the culture of policing in this country. And and we all know that. Um, You know, in so many ways, it's Something as as basic as as solar rooftop panels or community solar project with neighborhood grids could have really saved the day here. I mean, we could all be back home if we had more of those options and and not a situation where one company could use its its you know political uh, domination to get elected officials on the Louisiana Public Service Commission and the New Orleans City Council to basically follow along its agenda that, that, you know, brushes those kinds of options to the side. And so just kind of, you know, uh, metastasizing from that, that, those moments in time when solar options and renewable energy and uh, energy efficiency options were being shot down one time after another in these you know, meeting rooms and, and hearings uh, uh, before the Public Service Commission New the City Council by energy uh, companies. We, you can see all of these very, you know, serious scenarios, and they are more than scenarios; they're real-life experiences beginning to unfold. Um, and so, it's my hope that you know with this biden harris administration the focus around the justice 40 initiative and understanding uh the ways in which communities are uh it should be you know the the center of infrastructure planning versus developers or 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 you know uh, contractors and the, and the like that you know we we can marshal those forces here in the gulf region to really demonstrate what an equitable rebuilding should look like. And that 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 is founded on an energy plan and action that uh, really values solar, renewable uh, sources of energy and making that, putting that in the hands to the benefit of the people who need it the most.
0: Thank you so very much, Monique. We appreciate you getting us up to speed and also giving us a vision of what needs to happen in order for us to better handle these situations in the future. How do folks reach you or follow you and your work? Um,
3: We have a a, a Twitter, it's at at DSCEJ, that stands for Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, so at DSCEJ is our Twitter handle. They can find us online on our website at DSCEJ.org. If they want to follow up with me, they can reach me on email at MoniqueH
0: at DSCEJ.org. Thank you again. Please be safe out there. And looking forward to speaking with you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity, Nana. Thank you. This is Nana Jumpy, guest host of Sojourner Truth, temporarily filling in for Margaret Prescott. We're going to take a quick station break. When we return, Carl Hamad Liscomb joins us to discuss the latest on immigration. We'll also bring you our weekly Earth Minute, presented by... Teresa Church of the Global Justice Ecology Project. Please stay with us. We'll be right back.
5: I didn't get too much. Don't mind nobody. Yeah, I got more than jealousy. Very soon you go messy, messy. I got you what you want. Put you in the front. do go do you messy, messy. Miss what you can me, baby. Messy, messy. I got you what you want. Put you in the front. do go do you messy. Messi, Messi. Baby, you sochi ukemasi yo. know the pressure go de. Soon everything go be okay. I promise you one trip for Dubai, one trip for Hawaii, one trip for Bali. Anywhere you want, to go down to mommy. I will take the mask off your face. Put a smile on it. And that's all I want what to do, do for you. Everyone you and very go, messy messy. I got you what you want. Put you in the front, never do you messy messy. Welcome, Welcome back to
0: Sojourner Truth. This is your guest host, Nana Jumpy temporarily filling in for Margaret Prescott. And you can check us out on our website at so true radio.org. If you're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, make sure to like and follow us there. We're also worldwide on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. Internationally, we'd like to give a shout-out to our listeners on the continent of Africa. And nationally, we'd like to give a shout-out to our listeners in Louisiana Before we continue with the rest of today's show, let's turn to our weekly Earth Minute presented by Teresa Church of the Global Justice Ecology Project.
4: According to a new study by Climate Central, the hot, arid, and dry weather conditions fueling wildfires across the western U.S. have increased in frequency over the past 50 years. Blazes, including the huge Caldor Fire burning across Northern California, are being exacerbated by spiking temperatures and increasing winds, challenging firefighters' ability to contain them. While climate change has made this region of the U.S. warmer and drier, the heating of waters in the Gulf of Mexico are driving increasingly severe storms like Hurricane Ida, which is leading to historic flooding and impacts up the East Coast. As the corporate-dominated U.N. Climate Conference approaches, we must keep the focus on real-world solutions to climate change that promote transformative action instead of false solutions aimed at prolonging business as usual as we stand on the verge of climate catastrophe. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church with Global Justice Ecology Project. Let's welcome Carl Hamad Liska,
0: who joins us to discuss the latest on immigration Carl Hamad Liscom is a veteran policy strategist, a movement builder, writer, and advocate for immigrant rights, criminal justice reform, and racial equity. He currently serves as the executive director of Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, an organization committed to dismantling and transforming the immigration and criminal legal systems. Greetings, Carl.
6: Good morning, Nana.
0: There is a lot happening in the world of immigration policy. Um, I'm going to focus on three areas, detention, deportation, humanitarian immigration protections, and the pathways to citizenship moving through reconciliation in Congress right now. But first, um, many uh, advocates in immigration policy are feeling some frustration with the administration's Immigration policy decisions so far. For example, a federal district court judge in Nevada just struck down a decades old law making it a felony to re enter the United States after deportation on the grounds that it has racist, nativist roots. Immigration advocates have called the decision groundbreaking. Judge Miranda Du ruled last Wednesday that Section 1326 which criminalizes reentry to the United States if a person has previously been denied admission or was deported, violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Advocates were happy. The administration is appealing. (laughs) The administration has also um, pointedly asked uh, Central Americans and folks from Haiti to not come to the United States. Where are we? What, what do you see as an advocate that's had long work in immigration rights as well as criminal justice reform? Where are we with this administration?
6: You know, I, you know it saddens me to say this, but we are with this administration um, in a similar position um, to where we were a year ago today um, under the previous administration. Um, This administration, despite its promises to, you know, the American people um, during the campaign, um, despite its um, seemingly um, progressive or liberal overtones, um, has kept in place um, or advanced many of the policies of the previous administration, of the Trump administration, which really were, you know, the the Trump administration um, really um, just embodied U.S. immigration law. And so, you know, to an extent, um, you know, this administration is um, keeping with um, the trends that we've seen um, over the last five years or so, um, you know, enforcing policies that, cri- policies that criminalize immigrants that are xenophobic and that are racist. But the reality is that um, this, is the, this is the core of um, U.S. immigration law, and this is the main problem
0: we have here. We just did a segment talking about Hurricane Ida and what's happening in Louisiana. And of course, when we think of Louisiana and we think of immigration, we think of how many folks are detained there. We think of deportations happening out of Louisiana, particularly for black migrants. More than one out of every five non-citizens facing deportation on criminal grounds in this country is black. Uh, we know that average of 76 percent of the black folks who are looking at being deported in this country are being deported on criminal grounds. Can you talk about what is happening in terms of the criminalization of black migrants, the impact that that's having on our communities and what we're talking about is as advocates to stop the devastating separation of black migrants from our families and communities.
6: Sure, Nana, and I'm glad you raised this because, you know, I think the conversation about immigration is often detached from our broader conversations about, you know, policing and incarceration um, and racial justice, when the reality is that this is all one system that's runs along the same trajectory. We know that most Black people in the U.S. live in communities that are heavily policed. Um, We know that the incarceration crisis um, in this country overwhelmingly impacts Black folks. And not only do we see something similar in the immigration system, where Black folks are more likely to be detained um, and deported, um, it is really because of the criminal legal system that many Black people end up in deportation proceedings. Um, You know, just to give your listeners a sense of how this works, someone, you know, encounters a police officer, they're stopped, they can get arrested, um, and the charges themselves, whether or not they're found guilty, can trigger um, an alert in the immigration system. So if someone, and oftentimes those charges might not even be criminalized locally or in the state that they live in, but because immigration law is so expensive, they could be deemed, quote-unquote, crimes under immigration law, which makes someone deportable. Um, fast forward, you know, someone who goes through their criminal case, um, if they're found, they're found guilty, they, you know, often, you know, they might be incarcerated, they might be sentenced. And a lot of people will think that their case is over. But if you're an immigrant, depending on what you're convicted of, this is, it's really just the beginning, you now have to go through the immigration system, which although immigration law is, um, you know, on on the books, it's supposed to be civil. Um, immigration is a, is a, you know, immigration violations of civil offenses. Um, our immigration system views itself as a criminal law enforcement agency. So it recriminalizes individuals um, after they've already experienced the criminal legal system. And for Black folks, the outcome um, you know, the outcomes are often, um, you know, like are, are just often um, adverse. Um, they often, you know, end up um, in immigration proceedings. Many immigrants go through proceedings without an attorney and without anyone to explain to them what's going on, um, many end up in, det- in detention. And, you know, many immigrants, um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of immigrants each year are deported. And in fact, this administration um, has continued that trend. This year, we've seen already seen more or as, almost as many deportations as we did last year. And um, on, almost on a weekly basis, up until a few weeks ago, um, there were deportations going to countries like Haiti, um, which was already experiencing um, instability.
0: And so there's another ruling that happened in the past couple of weeks, focusing on enforcement priorities, and I want to connect that to this conversation before we talk about humanitarian immigration relief, because the enforcement priorities targeted certain individuals as people who the ICE should be going after, basically, and was touted as a way to reduce the number of people who were being detained and reduce the number of people who were being deported. Um, Can you share with us, what the impact of enforcement priorities were, particularly on black migrants, as you've just described, um, are pulled into this dragnet from the criminal legal system into the detention deportation machine.
6: Sure. When it comes to black migrants, so the enforcement priorities, um, you know, basically they were a directive from um, the Department of Homeland Security from the White House to ICE saying these are the people that you that we want you to prioritize arresting, detaining and deporting, people that we deem public safety risks, people that we deem national security risks, people that are recent migrants, and so forth. The problem with that is one, you know, these defin- these things don't have legal definitions in most cases. We don't know what constitutes a public safety risk or a national security risk. Um, two, the, what, what is being used, the barometer that's being used is the criminal legal system. And so for an arresting, for an ICE officer, anyone that you know, almost anyone that goes through the criminal legal system, it could be a public safety risk and therefore an enforcement priority. When it comes to black folks, again, 75% of, of black folks that are deported is because of a criminal conviction. Um, So it's black folks are more likely than other immigrants to be deemed public safety risks um, by ICE and by immigration officials. Um, Now this is, you know, of course, that in and of itself is unjust. Another problem with that though is that these are are people, the people that ICE is targeting um, as public safety risks, have gone through the criminal legal system. And so the criminal legal system has inflicted its punishment, Um, and, you know, oftentimes they, you know, or in general, when someone is sentenced, it's a judge saying, we believe that after this amount of time, you will no longer be a risk, you should be released, you should go home, you should be with your family, Um, that's enough punishment. And the immigration system is saying, you know, it's basically overstepping their authority there and saying, no, you know, you judge, you know, even though the judge said that you should be out and about now and that you're no longer a threat after this amount of time, we still think you're a threat. So we're going to put you in deportation proceedings and
0: prioritize
6: you for
3: deportation.
0: And so now that the judge has struck down the enforcement priorities or, you know, basically said, hey, administration, you're not allowed to do that, should we breathe a sigh of relief? Does that mean that the black folks... And other communities of color are no longer going to be targeted by ICE. How do you what impact do you think that might have?
6: You know, no, we can't be the side of relief because, and you know, a lot of people in the in the immigration field hold the enforcement priorities up as though you know as they're the, as though they're like the Ten Commandments, and so ICE can't do anything outside of those enforcement priorities. But the enforcement priorities are just those; they're just priorities. They're not law. It's just those are just like they're basically advice or guidance from you know from higher up saying this is who you should prioritize. ICE still ICE still has the authority and the discretion to arrest and detain um, and deport anyone that they deem deportable um, based on immigration law. And so you know we can't we can't of relief. Um, you know those priorities were struck down. But all that really means is that ICE, instead of ICE focusing on you know, that limited number of people that's listed in the enforcement priorities, they now can prioritize everyone or anyone for deportation.
0: And the judge added some piece that has been creating like almost a list of people, names and addresses of folks that had been released by ICE allegedly under these uh, enforcement priorities. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out and whether the administration actually appeals that as they've appealed uh, the ruling on 1326 that we talked about previously. Carl, you talked about Haitians still being deported to Haiti even two weeks ago, you know, right before the earthquake. And we look at humanitarian immigration relief and how that is being talked about in the context of Afghanistan. So, as many folks know, Afghanistan uh, has a situation in which Afghans have been trying to come into the country. Many were brought into the United States. But there was a lot of holdup based upon the bureaucracy and what's available in terms of humanitarian relief um, that can come through immigration uh, policy. We know that there is a need for humanitarian immigration relief, not just with respect to Afghans and Afghanistan, but also for Haiti after this latest earthquake and the political violence there, as well as near war in Ethiopia and conflicts and crises in other countries in the global south. What should the Biden administration be doing differently?
6: They should be allowing as many people fleeing violence and political oppression and natural disasters um, like, the, like the earthquake. that um, took place a few weeks ago which was exacerbated by a hurricane. Um, you know, people that are, were victims of, of a U.S. war. They should be allowing as many people into the U.S. Um, as possible. They should be, you know, they should be continuously flying planes um, into the U.S. Because the reality is that many of these people um, are, you know, are in the position that they're in. The conditions in these countries um, are the way they are because of the U.S., either directly because of U.S. intervention and because the U.S., um, you know, took over their country for 20 years, or indirectly because of U.S. policies. That, that, exploited, um, that exploited their land, that exploited their people, or that allowed U.S. corporations to come in and to, to oppress um, entire populations. Um, and so the U.S. should be you know, fast-tracking it and making it easier for you know, people experiencing um, calamity that makes it such that they can no longer live in their homes to come to the U.S. and to seek refuge here.
0: And I'm thinking as you're talking about the humanitarian relief and the capacity for folks to come here, of course I'm thinking about the border, right? And just this repeated don't come, don't come, the double down that the administration has done on Title 42, which was before the administration when Trump was in power, touted and as cl- the clearly racist um, rule that it is. But now somehow has become okay, and where all of the different machinations that the administration seems to be going through with respect to the border, what should be happening there? Uh, what you know, what is that? What is at risk in terms of people who are languishing on the other side of the border, and particularly black migrants who often aren't talked about.
6: Yeah, you know, I think when it comes, and particularly when it comes to Black migrants, there are so few resources um, on the border for Black migrants that it's really, you know, you know, to a certain extent, survival is untenable for many Black migrants that are on the border. Um, They're in, you know, they're just they're in a position that's, you know, they're they're really in a space of limbo um, as they wait to see on what's going to happen and what the United States is going to do. Um, You know, like, I, you know, I've been a bit surprised by the lack of outrage, um, you know, from, you know, media funded, from immigration advocates um, on the Biden administration's rhetoric saying don't come and they're really, the way that they championed Title 42, um, there's almost been radio silence on it. Um, where, again, just a year ago, there would have been protests every week. Um, And, you know, when it comes to Black migrants, they're just, again, there's so few resources at the border, both resources in terms of, you know, people there helping and, you know, people there doing those types of humanitarian and charitable visits, but also just actual resources. There's very little funding for groups that work with Black migrants on the border. Um, You know, there are a few groups that work with Haitian migrants, but... We know that there are black migrants that um, you know that are not from Haiti that are from all over the world um currently languishing at the border, and so you know we not only need um, as advocates we need to raise the alarms alarm about what's happening at the border, um, especially when it comes to black migrants, um, but we also just really need to we need philanthropy we need you know. Uh, those larger organizations to step up and deploy resources to Black-serving groups, um, to, to Black immigrant organizations, to be able to go to the border
0: and support Black migrants that are there. Absolutely. And it wouldn't hurt to get some of these international eyes on there as well, whether it be Organization of American States, the U.N., etc. Thank you for laying that out for us, Carl. And finally, let's talk about these pathways to citizenship. So last summer, the Biden administration, as well as many in the immigrant rights world, insisted that these pathways to citizenship were going to be for approximately 11 million undocumented people in the United States, that it was going to be citizenship for all. But as these bills have been drawn up, whether it be Dream and Promise Act, the Senate Dream Act, the Essential Worker Act, the Farm Workers Act, it's clear that some folks are going to get left behind. Carl, who is going to be left behind based upon what we're seeing right now with these bills, and what should be happening to expand and make sure that more people are included?
6: Yeah. um a lot of people are gonna be left behind. You know, the more that we learn about these bills, the more that you know, the, the more we realize that they're really just gonna be a start, and not, this is not even, they're not even gonna get us halfway there when it comes to relief for undocumented immigrants um, in the US. Specifically, almost all of the bills, all of the bills actually um, have carve-outs for individuals with criminal convictions um so those people that we we talked about earlier in this interview most of them or anyone with a criminal conviction even if they're not detained or deported um will be ineligible um for you know for these immigration programs for this form of relief um it leaves out again recent immigrants um and it gives the discretion um primarily to the government to dhs to decide who will be eligible and the problem with that is as we've seen over the last ten years or so where DACA has been in place, um, when when DHS has discretion, they are able to they turn away whomever they want, and many, if not most of the, the folks that end up getting turned away, are folks like black immigrants. So with the DACA program, even though you know almost eight percent of immigrants in the US, undocumented immigrants are black, only about two percent of DACA holders were black immigrants. And many black immigrants were just flat out rejected from DACA because they have some sort of criminal context. And it doesn't even have to be a conviction. In this case, they're not living in convictions; they're looking at one's entire record um, or their entire profile since they've been in the US. So, uh, you know, most of, you know, this is, that's a big group that's gonna be left out. Um, you know, people that um, have arrived that, um, you know, that, um, you know, might've come over from the border, um, unauthorized, Um, you know, many of them are going to be left out, um, you know, if there are issues with one's taxes at any given point, um, those folks are going to be left out. There's just a lot of categories of people that are left out of these bills. Um, you know, that's not to say that relief for some isn't good. Um, you know, green cards, citizenship, those are very important protections, um, against deportation and enable, um, folks to be able to work. Um, and it makes life a lot easier for some people in the U.S., but they're not magic bullets. Um, you know, they don't protect against racial profiling. Um, they don't protect against white supremacy, and they don't protect everyone. They really, you know, they don't benefit a large segment of undocumented immigrants. Arguably, you know, I saw a number that there are roughly 20 to 25 million um, undocumented immigrants, you um, in the U.S., there could be. Um, and so if that's the case, then they
0: you know, they don't even represent half of undocumented immigrants. Yeah, a lot of people left behind hopefully will be able to at least limit the number of exclusions that are happening and then maybe get in some generous waiver that's going to allow folks to be able to opt in who normally would be opted out. We only have a couple of minutes, but I would be remiss. If I did not ask you about bond, because we know that in the criminal legal system reform conversations, bail is a a big piece of that, of what people are reforming and what people are changing. Can you talk to folks about immigration bond and what changes need to be made there to keep folks from being detained um, for long periods of time? Yeah, thank you, Nana, for asking about immigration bond. Immigration
6: bond functions a lot like bail in the criminal legal system. It's a payment, or like we like to say, it's a ransom that people have to pay for their freedom. Um, You know, over the last few years, there's been a big move to end cash bail. And, you know, that's super important um, and great that we've seen those victories. In the immigration space, there, you know, there hasn't been as big of a movement because bond is one of the few ways that folks that are wrapped up in the detention system have of being released. Ultimately, the way to fix immigration bonds is to end immigrant detention. Um, no one should be detained, and then they won't have to worry about paying to be released. But immigration bond itself, they are just a myriad of problems. Um, the cost of bond is, is really, really high. Under federal law, the minimum bond is $1,500. So a judge, if they're gonna get bonds, it has to be at least $1,500. But usually we see bonds, we at Brooklyn Community Bail Fund see bonds in the range of $10,000, $11,000. And then this year under the Biden administration, we've seen bonds as high as $50,000 to $100,000. Um, the way that it's set is arbitrary. Um, judges don't have guidance. Um, there's, no, there's no predictability in the way bond is set. People with similar cases can have different bond amounts set. Um, and it's just, you know, it's it's just very, it's, paying bond is an arduous process for families um, that usually don't have the money to pay. But even if they did, it's extremely difficult to pay. One has yeah. to have some sort of documentation in order to pay bonds. Thanks, um, Carl. The office to pay bonds are I, all out and so forth. Um, Carl, I
0: got to, yeah, I, I got to, I got to trans- move, Carl, but I thank you so very much. Appreciate the information you've shared. Appreciate your insight. Um, we-, we will make sure that folks know how to reach you or follow you um, and your work. If you could give us a Twitter handle, we'd appreciate that before we close out.
6: Sure. Visit us online at brooklyndalefund.org, or you can follow me on Twitter at Carlkins, C-A-R-L-K-E-N. Thanks so much for
0: having me, Nana. Thank you. Sorry for having to cut you off. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Nikki was unable to join us today, folks, but we hope to bring her on the show in the future. I'd like to thank all of today's guests and the entire Sojourner Truth team, host and producer Margaret Prescott, assistant producer Ramiro Fuñez, and audio engineer Federico Garcia. Thank you for listening.